you today, I invite you to turn to James chapter 5, and uh, we're continuing our series today in James, just one more after this week, and uh, I don't know about you, but God's been speaking to me a lot through this book, and um, last weekend was great, a lot of us were squirming a little bit in our seats last weekend through what James was saying to us, but um, appreciate that. How many of you enjoy watching uh, religious programming on television from time to time? I see your hands? Okay. Yeah. You know, when you do that, you can't flip through too many channels before you come across a TV preacher or teacher who is promoting a brand of Christianity that is very, very appealing. The underlying theme to that brand of teaching basically says this, God wants all of his children healthy, wealthy, and happy. And uh, it is sometimes called prosperity theology. And these people's faces will fill the screen and look at you and they'll say, you know, if you'll just have enough faith, if you'll just uh, speak these words of faith to God, if you'll just claim this or that, if you'll just send us a certain amount of money, then God is obligated to make your life easier, to remove some of the bumps in your life, to heal all your diseases, and to send money flowing into your wallet. <laughs> and... Um, This sounds really good, doesn't it? Especially to people who are beset with issues and with problems and with hardships when the bills are piling up on the bureau. That brand of teaching sounds very, very appealing. My question has always been, is it it true? Is it accurate? Um, And you know, I'm supportive of anyone who is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think the scriptures call us to be supportive of that. But I do see a basic problem with prosperity theology, and it's this. It's basically foreign to the teaching of the New Testament. Um, When we look in the Bible, for example, we do see that uh, there are people of wealth in the Bible, but most often in the New Testament, we're challenged to not, you know, work hard to get rich, but we're challenged to be rich in good deeds, to be content with what we have, and actually to be wary of the deceitfulness of riches. Instead of um, being encouraged by the New Testament to avoid suffering at all costs, we're actually encouraged to embrace suffering, aren't we? Especially that suffering that comes from being a follower of Jesus Christ. Instead of uh, telling us that we should try to escape hardship, the New Testament talks about enduring hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So I'm a little bit wary of prosperity theology teaching. The case in point is the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today in the book of James. It was written to some Christian people who were having a very hard time of it, to be honest. Money was tight, circumstances were difficult at their jobs. They were overworked and underpaid. Their bosses were overbearing. Can any of you relate to that, having an overbearing boss? And life was generally hard for these people. But any mention of claiming health, wealth, and prosperity is noticeably lacking from this passage. Take a look at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. See for yourself what he says to these folks. I'd like us to read this aloud, all of us together. James chapter 5, beginning with verse 7. Here we go. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, 
and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Now, when you read that, do you see anything here about about claiming your miracle of deliverance? Do you see any... um, rebuke for not having enough faith to turn your situation around? Do you see James telling his audience to command money to flow into your coffers? Do you see any of that? I don't see it. What we do see James saying here is several things. First, he says, be patient. Be patient. The Lord is coming back. Jesus, who promised to come back, will come back. And when he touches down on this earth, when he sets up his administration, he will make all things right. Let me tell you, justice will prevail in the administration of Jesus Christ when he is the president, the ruler of this world. And so James says, be patient. Keep one eye on the clouds. Keep your head up. Jesus is coming back. And then he says, stand firm. Stay anchored to the truth. And he says, please don't take out your frustrations on the people around you, the people you love. He says, don't grumble against one another. And it's tempting when... Life is pressing in on us to take it out on the people closest to us, the people that we love. And James says, don't do that. And then he says, get some perspective about your problems, about your situation. Get some perspective. Think about the examples from the history of the nation of Israel, the examples of patient endurance, he says. People who suffered horribly, who had very, very hard lives and endured it. He basically says, compare your situation to theirs and and get a whole new perspective. Get some new lenses through which to see your life. And then he says, don't bail. (laughs) Don't bail, as, as Sean just sang. Hold on. Persevere through your hard times. Don't quit on God. Then he says, trust God. Never stop looking for how your merciful and compassionate God can bring good out of the bad that you're going through right now. And finally, he says, whatever you do, don't seek revenge. Don't retaliate. Refuse to be vengeful. Don't swear to get even with the people who are making life hard for you. When he says, don't swear in this passage, he's not talking about cussing or profanity. He's talking about taking oaths. And most commentators say that that what he's talking about here is is people who are saying, I'm going to get even with those people who are making my, my life hard. He says, don't do that. Keep your integrity. And he says, no matter what happens, make it a policy in your life to say what you mean and mean what you say. Let your yes mean yes and your no, no. I know it's not a popular view and it'll probably keep me off the the television airwaves. But, listen, followers of Jesus, Jesus never promised us an easy life. We are not guaranteed a pain-free, easy life in this world. We're not. Just this week, a family in our church 
a godly family. After months of hoping and dreaming and praying for a certain adoption situation to work out in their family, found out this week that it didn't happen. It did not work out. And they were, of course, disappointed about that and and even, I think, maybe questioning God some. And yet someone might look at that family and say, well, you didn't have enough faith or you weren't standing on the word or whatever. And But I know this family. They're full of faith. We were not promised in this life that everything would go our way, that all of our hopes and dreams would be fulfilled. And the sooner we accept that truth, the better. Now, I want to say a few things about this idea James alludes to of of gaining perspective, okay, of getting some perspective on our situation. I've come to believe that this is crucial when it comes to patiently enduring the difficult situations that come our way. I think it's a key to unlocking all the other things he says. So let's talk about gaining perspective for a little bit. In verse 10, he says, Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Basically, he's saying, look, I know your life is hard right now. I'm not denying that. But think for a moment about people who've had it a lot harder than you have it. Think about some of those heroes from our past, he said, some of our local legends, the prophets. You see, in that day, in that culture, the the celebrities in that culture were not rock stars or sports figures or actors or American Idol contestants. They were the prophets. Those were the legends. Those were the heroes. Those were the people whose faces graced the posters on the walls of teenagers. It was Isaiah and Jeremiah and Haggai and Samuel who were on the trading cards that the kids played with in those days. The prophets were the heroes. And James says, I want you to to think about those prophets and what they went through to gain some perspective on your situation. Now, the great faith chapter in the Bible, the Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews 11, tells us what some of those prophets went through. Listen. Some were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. Yikes. They were put to death by the sword. These prophets went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered around in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Do you know which prophet was sawed in two? You know, it was Isaiah. Now listen, if you get sawed in two, by any standard of measurement, that's a bad day at the office, okay? I mean, that's bad. It gets sawed in two. You know, sometimes I fall into the trap of thinking that my life is pretty hard. You ever find yourself having those kinds of thoughts? Like the other day, I had to go to Walmart. (laughs) And I picked the wrong day the wrong time, the wrong weather to go. I mean, I drive over to Walmart. There's not a parking space within two acres of the entrance, you know. So I'm I'm parking way out on the back 40, and I'm trudging through the rain and stuff to to get into Walmart. And I get in there. I got my stuff I got to get. So I pick it all up, and I think, you know, to save time, I'm going to go through the express checkout lane. 
because I'm a busy person. I got, you know, places to go, people to see. So I'm in the express checkout lane, and the guy in front of me has the unmitigated gall to have 13, count them, 13 items, when the sign specifically says maximum 10. And I'm standing there with my, with my items, and I'm fuming, and I'm counting out his items, and I'm thinking, you know, my life is hard. Every weekend, we, uh, at the end of our services, you know this, we ask you to put your prayer requests on the back of the little celebration card. And on Wednesdays, every week, our ministry staff comes together and we pray over those. I just, I want to tell you, it is good for me to see those prayer requests every week for, for many reasons. But for one, it just gives me some perspective on my own situation. Just as a sampling, let me give you some of the prayer requests that you gave just last week. Please pray for a friend of our family whose daughter just died of an asthma attack. Please pray for a young lady who just had brain surgery that didn't go well. Pray for a lady I know who attempted suicide and lost her job and her husband left her with two young children. Would you please pray for my father who is in ICU right now with a brain aneurysm. Pray for a mom who just found out that her kid is on drugs. My grandfather died this morning, someone wrote. Please pray for me. I lost my 44-year-old son to a brain tumor last week. When I compare my situation to the situation of others, you know what I come to realize? My life just isn't really that hard. Sure, it, it was a little convenience. The whole Walmart deal was a little inconvenience to me. But I didn't get sawed in half. I didn't lose a son this week. My life really isn't that hard in comparison with the lives of others. I um, was listening to a CD the other day, as I like to do, and the guy on the CD was, uh, was talking about the international travesty of the sex slave trade that's going on over in Southeast Asia. You heard about this? the human trafficking that's going on, where young preteen girls are being sold into forced prostitution. And this is their life, day in and day out, servicing their customers, and they've got quotas and things, and, and really they, they have no way of thinking they could ever have any other existence. And you know, I'm, re- I'm listening to that, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in that situation, and I'm thinking, no way, you know? I, I can't imagine what that would be like. To have that kind of an existence. Thankfully, there's some people and some organizations now coming together to to make a difference over there and to get some of these girls released from that life. And this summer, we're inviting a speaker from the International Justice Mission to come here and to talk to us about this and open our eyes to what's going on and, and show us ways that we can help. You know what? My life isn't really that hard. Not in comparison with others. It's really not. In the Bible, there is one person in particular who epitomizes a life of pain and suffering. Who is it? It's Job. It's Job. And James refers to Job by name as someone whose life we should consider when we think we're having it pretty rough. In verse 11, he says, You've heard of Job, of Job's perseverance, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Now, you and I may have had some bad days 
Anybody have a bad day this week? Anybody? Let me tell you, none of us has ever had a day like Job had. That was a bad, bad day. In the matter of a few devastating moments, his whole life came unglued, didn't it? It was shattered. He lost his livelihood, he lost his business, he lost his livestock, he lost his children, and he lost his health. Just in the matter of a few moments. Devastation. Got so bad that his wife looked at him at one point and said, why don't you just curse God and die? Why are you holding on to your, to your integrity, Job? Why are you holding on to God? Look what he's done to you. And James says, think about Job for a minute. Think about what happened to him for a couple reasons, I think. One, just to give us some perspective on our problems in comparison with his. But secondly, to give us an example. We could look at the life of Job and, and see how he responded to difficult, dark days for those times in our lives when we're feeling beaten down. And I reviewed his life this week and, and found several things in Job's example that I think can help us in our dark days. Number one is this. Job, going through what he went through, related to God, listen, he related to God in an authentic way and refused to stuff his emotions. How many of you have ever read Job, the book of Job? Aren't you just blown away by the, the uncensored, unedited, raw stuff you read in that book? Here's a sampling, chapter 3. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? My life is so hard. I wish I hadn't been born. I wish I was still born. Chapter 6, Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. I'm weighted down with grief and despair and anguish, he says. Chapter 7, he turns to God and says, If I've sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Why am I in your crosshairs, God? Why, why, why have I become your whipping boy here? Why are you taking out your, your wrath on me? Have I become a burden to you? Chapter 21, he starts to think about how good other people have it. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? tell you, I appreciate the unfiltered, uncensored questions and prayers of Job during his dark days, don't you? I had lunch with a guy a couple weeks ago who was having some difficult times, and he said, you know, Steve, sometimes I just want to yell at God. I just want to yell at him and just pour out my anger and frustration at him at what he's doing in my life, but he said, I'm afraid if I ever did that, that God would just explode and just... <laughs> Just incinerate me, you know, and leave me in a pile of ashes there on the ground. So I don't do that. Listen. Listen, everybody look at me. God can take whatever you dish out. God is big enough to take whatever you need to dish out. He can take your angry venting. He can take your cross-examination of his motives and your accusations. He can take your, your laments and your heartfelt sobs. God can take it. Job let it all out. 
You know, the, the, the interesting thing, it's kind of counterintuitive, is we think that if someone does that and really just lets it all out with God, that that would drive God away. But you know what the truth is? It actually brings God closer. Because God is close to the brokenhearted. I love the way one man put it in a book that he wrote called The Cry of the Soul. He said, the irony, the irony of questioning God is that it actually honors him. It turns our hearts away from ungodly despair towards a passionate desire to comprehend God. Johnny Erickson Tata wrote this, Despair directed at God is a way of encountering Him, of opening up ourselves to someone who can actually do something about our plight. The truth is when we open up our deepest heart cries out of our pain and suffering, that it actually draws God close. Have you ever done that? One of my favorite titles of Jesus is Man of Sorrows Acquainted with Grief. Pain touches pain. And God connects with the soul of the person who's just pouring out their heart to him. He's big enough to take it. Job related to God in an authentic way and refused to stuff his emotions. Number two, Job tried, didn't he? He tried to cooperate as God refined him through suffering. I love this verse, Job 23.10. But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. I'm sure that Job did not understand all the reasons why God... I'm not sure he understood any of the reasons why God allowed his pain and suffering, but he did understand this. Through my hardship, I'm being tested. I'm being refined. I'm being purified. God, the divine goldsmith, is turning up the heat in my life so that the impurities in my soul will rise to the surface. And he'll skim those off and look and see if he yet sees his clear reflection in that pot of gold. Job says, God is my refiner, my purifier. He's testing me. And he tried his best to cooperate with God. Third, despite being devastated, Job refused to give up on God. You ever been tempted to give up on God in a dark time? Amazingly, it's it's amazing to me, Job didn't. And this verse, Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet will I what? Hope in him. God, you can fillet me, you can kill me, you can slay me, I will not turn away from you. You are my God. Where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? I will yet hope in my God. He refused to quit on God. Let me tell you something today. I don't know what you're going through in your life, but you haven't been through anything like Job went through. And if Job can hang on to God during those times, you can too. Number four. Job, I love this one. Job relied on God's compassion and mercy to bring good out of bad circumstances. 
James says, think about the, what the Lord finally brought about in Job's life. And we don't have time to get into all of it, but suffice it to say that Job made a stunning comeback. A rally, a turnaround that, that even the Buckeyes would be proud of. It says that at the end of his life, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. Listen, God is a specialist at bringing good out of the ugly, bad stuff in our lives. Do you believe that? He's a specialist in this. It's like that old song says, gather up the broken pieces of your life and bring them to the Lord and he'll make something beautiful out of it. He's a specialist. Think about, you know, if God just made our lives easy all the time, like we'd like, if he just made our lives easy all the time, there's a whole side of God, there's a whole dimension of God that we would never know or appreciate or worship him for. Because we wouldn't see it. And believe me, God wants to be known. Many of you have heard of Johnny Erickson Tata, I mentioned earlier. Four decades ago, she had a diving accident, a tragic diving accident, which left her without the use of her limbs. She became a quadriplegic. She spent the last four decades in a wheelchair. Her whole life was upended, as you might imagine, through that incident. And um, she spent years learning, you know, to live with these new limitations and struggling, trying to make sense of God's ways in her life and, and what he had allowed to happen. Eventually, she was able to come to an appreciation of the good that God was bringing out of the bad in her life, and she wrote a book called When God Weeps. In that book, she said this, you know, God allows suffering into our lives for a reason. He allows suffering to purge us from our, to purge sin from our lives to force us to depend on Him, to strengthen our commitment to Him, to bind us together with other believers, to foster sensitivity in our hearts, to discipline our minds, to stretch our hope, to teach us to give thanks in time of sorrow, to deepen our character, and to cause us to know God. This coming from a woman who for the last 40 years has been in a wheelchair, paralyzed from the waist down. You say, Steve, I cannot see how any good could come out of my situation right now. It's bleak, it's dark, it's painful, it's stressful. I just can't see how God's going to cause anything good to come out of it. Why is God allowing these things to happen to me? And I'm sure I don't know all the reasons, because His ways are higher than our ways. But I'll tell you, one thing we've seen over and over and over again in people's lives is that through pain and through enduring suffering, new ministries are born out of our pain and suffering. I got to thinking about this, some of the ministries in our church. I got to thinking about our divorce care ministry. You know how that got started? This, this is a ministry that ministers to people going through divorce. You know how it got started? Two people. Jack and Sharon, who'd been through the pain of divorce, found God sufficient to help them navigate those turbulent waters, then turned around and said, I think God wants to use us to help other people. Born out of pain. I got to thinking about the the new Christian 12-step recovery program that just started. Born out of pain and suffering of, of Dustin and Diane and others 
who had gotten sucked into addiction and drugs and alcohol and, and through God have broken free from that and now are saying, we want to help other people do that. I got thinking about our heart ministry, healing effects of abortion-related trauma that ministers to women who've made that abortion choice and, and helps them to process the guilt and the shame and the regret and the pain that they feel. And how did that get started? Patty, who'd gone through that process, said, I, I want God to use me now to help other people. And I think about ministry after ministry after ministry. So many of them were birthed out of pain and suffering. It's like Joseph, the Bible character, who went through all kinds of grief and was betrayed by his brothers. But at the end of the day, at the end of his, his life, he looked at his brothers and said, you know what, guys, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good so that he might accomplish the saving of many lives. That I might have a ministry now of blessing many, many people. God took the brokenness and the pain and the evil and the betrayal and turned it into something good. I want to finish this morning by letting you hear the story of a lady in our church whose name is Lisa. And when I sat down and listened to her story last weekend, it helped me realize, you know, my life isn't just just isn't that hard. <laughs> and Lisa has a story, and God has turned things for good in her life. And um, so, Lisa, come on up, wherever you are. And uh, why don't you guys welcome Lisa Smith, all right? Good morning. A difficult life. I ponder every time I hear that statement. I'm told that um, I came into this world fighting for my life. I'm here to tell you today, it was God that was fighting for my life. You see, I was unwanted, unplanned, and I was born to a lady out of wedlock. And I was premature, underweight, failure to thrive, and a weakened immune system, not expected to live very long at all. It was recommended to my mother that she give me up for adoption because, after all, fear to thrive babies, that cost money. She didn't have any. So she gave me up for adoption. I was very fortunate to be picked and selected by two beautiful people who love me more than life itself, even today. They were my saving grace. And just beyond the horizon... There was God. God. Didn't really know God. I'd been taught about the love of God, but also been taught about the vengeful God, the God that punishes if you do wrong. And that stayed with me all through my childhood. I went to school one day, and I came back a very different child. My parents and I were told that Lisa won't learn like other children. Lisa couldn't possibly function in society, the way other children had, she'd never graduate. She'd never amount to anything. It was best if you institutionalized Lisa. My parents didn't believe that. My parents thought, not our daughter. We see a light in her, and she's going to be somebody one day. They believed in me, and nobody else would. And then there was God, just beyond the horizon, watching. I grew up. 
went to high school, even graduated. <laughs> Said I couldn't do that, and I did. My senior year, I was introduced to drugs and alcohol. And one night at a party, I got too drunk, and I lost my virtue as a complete stranger. I sought some guidance and to be consoled by a friend, a person that I really believed in. And that person told me, oh, Lisa, the wrong you've done. The die's been cast. You're damaged goods. Nobody will want you now. And that carried in me for a long time. I went on to college, left my parents' home, the security of where they were, and I went into college life. Anybody know about college life? Anybody? Hmm. Quite a different place to be, huh? A lot of freedom. A lot of freedom. Ooh, and a lot of poor choices. <laughs> I um, dove into drugs and alcohol, and I had a social life like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> uh, one night at a party, somebody gave me four heads of acid in a drink. I didn't realize they put it in my drink. And I must have passed out because when I came to consciousness, I was being sexually assaulted. I was being raped by four men. I had my head in shame and I sought help after that. And when I went to people that were supposed to be able to help me on campus, they told me, you put yourself in a position, ma'am, you take the risk. It's your fault. Well, then I really dove headfirst into self-destructive behavior. Drugs and alcohol, promiscuous living. I figured, well, why the heck not? If I'm not anyone anybody can save, I'll go for broke. And boy, I did. Eventually, I left college. I went on to um, my parents' house and moved home. And then I began working in Columbus. I met a man. And by this time, I figured out that I'm pretty good at helping people with problems. Because if I look at everybody else's problems, I don't have to look at my own. I don't have to take ownership. I don't have to hold myself accountable. And in the background, there's God the whole entire time telling me, Lisa, I'm right here. Lisa, come home. Lisa, daughter, just turn around. Ask me for help and I'll give it to you. And the harder he asked, the faster I ran. This man, I believe, loved me. He gave me kindness and care and love and concern, just like my parents. So I moved away from my parents' home, and I moved in with them. We started to live together, and one night we had an argument. That argument led to loud words, and those loud words led to screams. And the screams led to me being slammed into a wall, face first. Five years several concussions, a detached retina, shattered ankles, broken jaw, and the loss of two children. I left that relationship. I fought for my life one night, and I swore it was going to be him and not me. And it almost was him. The EMTs and the police pried my hands away from his neck, and they brought him back. I'd be in Marysville today for murder. My life spiraled even more. I swore at that point in time that I was going to fix myself, 
that I was going to find out what was wrong with me. I shut down. I didn't meet anybody else. Drugs and alcohol, that was what I was going to be by myself the rest of my life. Uh, and while I'm traveling, Satan is whispering in my ear, Oh, see, you really aren't worth anything, are you, Lisa? Come over to me. I'll take care of you. Nobody else will understand, but, you know, I will. God, God would never forgive you. Not for the sins you've committed. So I went down that dark road. The next man I married, he was a musician by profession for a satanic band. Played satanic music. I went clear on the opposite end. And this time, I can see and feel God crying. Off in the distance. And my drug and alcohol habits had been so incredibly thick. I supported my habit any way I could. I danced in bars. I even ran security for a drug dealer on his crops. Sadly, though, my husband and I couldn't conceive children. We weren't able to. And that broke our hearts. When we decided to move forward with our life, my husband had a psychotic break. And I began to live with a stranger. And he would mask his problems with drugs and alcohol, just like I did. But he didn't want to get better. We went through marriage counseling. We went through every single help session I could find for us. But two people have to want to heal, and two people have to want to get better. And he wasn't willing. So I divorced this man. And there's Satan right in my ear again. Ha, see, failure. You can't even hold a marriage together. And there's God in the, just off in the distance on the horizon. Lisa, ask me. I'm here. I'm right here. I still didn't want to believe that. How could God forgive me? I mean, I was right up there with Mary Magdalene. I'd sinned so terribly. I couldn't imagine being forgiven. The choices were mine. The decisions I made. I walked that road. Nobody made me. I never had to want for anything. I chose those things. After my divorce, I threw myself into my job. Many years later, I met another man. He was kind, very sweet, very endearing. He lived the life that I'd lived in the past. But he was calmer, and he had also given those things away and given them up. We became a couple. We moved in together. We never got married, but we did live together. And I became pregnant. And I was pregnant with twins. And I was very elated and very happy. Sadly, though, on the day they were born, my son, he lived for one hour and 15 minutes, and he died in my arms. He had a congenital heart defect. And my daughter, she lived for two months and three weeks. She died of SIDS. By this time, I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> I, I wanted to die. I didn't care how. <laughs> I tried a few times. Almost succeeded. The person that I was with, their father, 
He couldn't handle the loss of his children dying. So he left me, abandoned me in my moment of need. And when he did that, I cursed the ground he walked on. How could someone leave me like that? How could they hurt me? Never really understanding how I left my Heavenly Father. A few years later, he came to me, found me where I was working, and he told me that he was dying. That he'd been diagnosed with a terminal disease and that he was not expected to live more than five or seven years. I couldn't let this man die thinking I hated him. As much as I was so enraged and angry with him, I couldn't do that. And when Michael died, I got on my knees that night, and I got on my face. Lord, help me now. I cannot do this by myself anymore. God forgave me. You know what? He really did. Forgave me for all of it. But I wouldn't forgive myself. I kept taking my sin and my condemnation off that cross and punishing and persecuting myself with it every day. But God is so good. He introduced me to people, God-fearing people, that belong to this church. And they brought me here. And when I came through those doors, I knew I was home. And when I sat down in those seats, in the empty seats up here, I saw all of my children, and they were smiling. And God told me that they were safe and that I was home. And I believe Him. And I don't stand in front of you today for your pity or your sorrow or to make it seem like my life in comparison is more or less than yours. My choices were my own. I am here today, however, to tell you that no matter how bad your situation seems, God will turn it for good. The work that I do professionally is with people with disabilities, people not unlike myself, the ones they thought would never be able to do anything. The ladies that I've been able to help the people I've been able to reach in prison ministry and outside of this church, women who've been rebuilding their lives for a long time, children who are broken, people who've touched my life and blessed me with the honor of being able to help them. God does forgive. He can forgive, and he will. And he's there for you if you just ask. Thank you. You know, when we um, were thinking about starting up a grief ministry, a grief recovery ministry, and Lisa came along and said, you know, I think I qualify for that. <laughs> Listen, gather up your broken pieces and bring them to God. Bring them to God. He can. He can. If he can do it for Job, if he can do it for Lisa, he can do it for you. He can make something 
beautiful of your life. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close.